as we're uh, reflecting on this unifying call of families, um, it is interesting because also in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, addresses a congregation of families uh, that is facing uh, disunity uh, and factions among them. Um, it's, it's a time that he uh, pauses and wants to address a moment to remind them of the Lord Jesus' institution of communion, a communal profession, something we do all together, and testament to the powerful work of Jesus and what he accomplished by his blood and his body. Uh, it's a remembrance of all that uh, he had accomplished with his work and the subsequent call um, to faith and into repentance because of the work and the provision he's given. And it's on this that the, Paul, that the Apostle Paul calls the church to unity and reminds them of who they are and why they take the Lord's Supper. And so hopefully today that will be our similar motive uh, is the reminder of unity as the body of Christ to remember that the Lord's provision uh, is sufficient. We're going to remember that Christ's work is not only just sufficient in our lives and for our shortcomings and for all our needs, but it is also by the testimony of us taking this, we are proclaiming that truth over ourselves, but we're taking it together. So by us taking it, you are also proclaiming that that sufficiency is good enough for all of us to participate in. This isn't just a work sufficient for you. It's a work that is sufficient for us, and thus we take the Lord's Supper, and we proclaim these truths through these elements. And so I will say, as the Apostle Paul also warns, if you haven't responded to Christ with the belief, then feel free, there's no real need to participate. Because like our other institution of baptism or like family dedication, this isn't something that gives you salvation. Rather, it is only a testimony of the salvation uh, that you already have. And so that's why, as a symbol, it wouldn't be fitting if you don't have that salvation to take part in that symbolism. But I would say that in this moment of reflection, if, that, if you find yourself in that state, then there is no reason you can't put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning and then take the Lord's Supper for the first time. There would be no other greater joy for us to be able to celebrate that with you. And so as we take now a moment and pause, reflect on the grace that has been given to you and your state of your response. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, Apostle Paul shares with us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So there'll be a time and a place that we won't do this, like at least in this way, anymore. So for now, though, let us remember what he did, and let's remember what he's doing, and let's be hopeful and expectant of what he will do, namely his coming again. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you again proclaim, the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, it's overwhelming at times to think of your son broken for our salvation. Such suffering demonstrated is a testimony of your great love for us. And so as we remember this work this morning, remind us of a salvation continuing to work out in our lives until you come. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let me take just a second. <clears throat> um, on this day to uh, 
recognize and give and, and communicate appreciation to our veterans as well as we did before the service. If you're a veteran, could you stand so that we could say thank you? Um, all the veterans in the room, we have a few. Okay, thank you guys. We uh, respect and honor uh, your service. And, and uh, it also strikes me this week, I realized um, how appreciative I am, how grateful I am that I get to do this job. Um, I know that the freedom to do stuff like this is, has been purchased by the service of so many. Um, and also just what a joy it is to get to do this. Realizing this week in preparation for this morning, um, I got to, to listen to and engage with the sermons of the likes of R.C. Sproul, A.W. Tozer, and others. Um, and actually, it made me think that maybe I need to change my first name to two initials. Um, that might help as well. So um, when we publish that, we're going to go with CM on that. So, um, But who gets to do that? Who gets to have these conversations with people as part of their job? And I, I do, and I'm very appreciative of it. The topic we're going to dive into today, this, this question of holy things, of sacred things, has come up several times already in our discussion of 1 Samuel. Um, not surprisingly, as we've looked at the tabernacles, we've looked at the ark, we've looked at these, these, these sacred things in the Jewish world, and it will continue to do so. Um, intriguingly, uh, as we were looking at the calendar, we'll be back at 1 Samuel next week, but then we hit, then it's Advent, um, and it's Christmas time, and then it's going to be um, early in the new year, and we always take some time at the beginning of the new year, and then we'll be moving into a capital campaign uh, season in early in the new year as well. And so it may be February or March before we're back to 1 Samuel after next week. So that'll give you plenty of time to read ahead um, and to be prepared. Um, but, but today, this time during these devoted um, Sundays, I'd love to take a little bit of time and I'll, I'll unpack that a little more here in a second. Um, divine life has been dispensed to us. Um, it's an amazing concept of what Paul was saying a second ago that literally just um, through the accepting of the free gift that Christ has purchased for us and offers freely, that just through the assent, the agreement, the confession, um, that we can, we can take part in that. In fact, if you will, if you'll join me in Ephesians chapter 4, um, if you have a Bible, you can do that where you are. If you need a Bible, there's probably some in the seats in front of you. They'll also be up on the screen here. It'll also be up on the screen here in a moment. But we're going to be in Ephesians 4, verse 20, to kind of... Um, uh, starting in verse 20, dive into this a little bit. So it starts this way, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Okay, so obviously we're stepping into the middle of a thought here, but that's just, that's the best place for us to get going. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be removed uh, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Look at this language. In true righteousness and holiness. That's, that's kind of amazing language there. The thought that, that this new life that we have is created in true righteousness and holiness. One of the things that has come up a few times Yesterday, as we talked about, our, was we had our worldview conference for, um, for many who were there yesterday and discussing through these things. One of the things that has come up, and it came up at a conference recently that some of the staff was at, is this idea of, of a, a lack of awe, A-W-E, in our culture. And I think there's a few issues connected to that. It's um, this, this lack of, like there's a deficiency of awe. In fact, there's studies now showing that. 
that there's a deficiency. When was the last time you experienced a sense of awe? Um, and I think there's probably an obvious cause for this. You can spot it. I, I saw it um, when I was here a couple of years ago, and we had the fireworks display going on, and I love our fireworks display. And I, um, as a kid growing up, we would go, and we would go, in Nacogdoches, we'd go out to, I think it was one of the softball fields, and then we would be there waiting forever and ever and ever and before they actually did fireworks. And then they were like eight minutes long. And there was very few things in life more disappointing than waiting all that time and getting like eight minutes of fireworks and then being done and going home, which took forever as well, the traffic. And, and so as a kid, I never felt satiated with fireworks. Like I never was like, I'm full. That's good. I'm topped off. Never got to experience that. Um, until here, until here at South Spring, a few years ago, um, when we had a 36-minute fireworks uh, display, the longest we'd ever done it, and about 20, I don't know, 22, 25, 28 minutes in, I was like, I'm good. I never thought that would ever happen. Like, I'll sit as long as they want to go, but honestly, if they ended now, I'd be fine. I'd be, I'd be all right with that. It's a good feeling to feel that, that sense of, of fullness, of completeness, of, of satiation with that, and that's a, that's a, it's a cool thing, but here's what it struck me. What struck me was, a couple of years ago, when Ginger couldn't be there, I FaceTimed her so she could see the finale, right? So that she could see the finale. So I FaceTimed her, and I hold up my phone, and after a few seconds, I realize I'm doing something really strange. Does anybody know what it was? I'm watching the fireworks through my phone, like this. Now, there's fireworks going off right out there. And, but I'm watching it through this tiny little screen, right? This pathetic little screen with this pathetic little camera on there. And that's how I'm watching fireworks that I'm in the presence of. And yet I could have just Googled fireworks and had the exact same experience as watching it through. When we go to concerts, how many of you notice now the tendency of people to take their phones out and start recording the concert, right? I guess to prove they were there or they claim they think they're going to watch it later. I don't know. They're lying to themselves. But they, they hold it out like this, and then they watch the concert through their phone. And I'm like, why don't you just Google concert? You could watch that anywhere. You paid for tickets to watch a concert through your phone. That seems silly to me. I think that's part of why this all this problem is there, is we see something shocking in the night sky. We see something shocking, and the first thing we do is we watch it through our phone. Versus experiencing it, actually being in the moment and experiencing it. So we do, we do a bad recording of it that then we try to show to somebody else and we start with like, now this isn't going to do it justice. Which means the way I watched it didn't do it justice even though I was there, I was watching it through my phone. And so there's, there's something really strange about that. Working with the, yesterday at the Worldview Conference, I, I showed my favorite new picture of the Grand Canyon and it was about a 14 year old kid with his back to the Grand Canyon and he's looking at his phone like this. And the reason that, I, mean, I don't know if it was staged or not. It was a great picture, though. And so, uh, but, but I think part of the issue that we're dealing with with this lack of awe is that we're disconnecting ourselves from the experience of the moment. We're disconnecting ourselves from these mighty and amazing things that God is doing. Our new self is created in, to quote, again, this feels almost heretical to say it, blasphemous to say it, but it's straight from God's Word. The Apostle Paul saying it. Our new self is created in true righteousness and holiness. After the likeness of God, we're created to experience holy things. Things that are now pure, we can handle. We can be part of. And that we are now 
transformed into this new person. So how do we, mud creatures that we are, frail creatures of dust, the amphibian of the physical and the spiritual, how can we experience holy, sacred things? How can we experience those really? The holy can be experienced by us who have so newly returned to the sacred status that God gave us at creation. Well, I think the answer is in what we've experienced this morning. God gives us physical experience to reveal the spiritual realities of the Christian faith. In various churches I've been a part of, I was never really clear on what these things were. Growing up and even at some point on staff, sometimes in the more evangelical type churches, the Protestant type churches, the sometimes they felt kind of tacked on, like, oh, it's our time for our quarterly communion. So we just kind of tacked that on at the end of the service. Let's do communion real quick, and then we'll get back to what we're doing. It, it had that feeling to me sometimes, sometimes growing up. Or baptisms when they showed up, it felt tacked on in some ways. And so I was never real clear. The more liturgical churches that I was a part of, yeah, we focus a lot more attention. We have communion every single service or whatever, and yet it was never really explained to me. I really didn't fully understand what was going on. I just knew I was supposed to walk up there and kneel, and they were going to, this, this strange guy was going to put something on my tongue and then, and then give me some drink, something, and, and it never made a lot of sense to me. I never really understood what was going on. It was never really explained. And so what we try to do here at South Spring is that we do have communion. We have the Lord's Supper every single week or almost every single week um, at 8.30 up here in the <coughs> front of the room. Um, you're welcome to join us. We have a time of special prayer. Um, if you need anointing with oil and being prayed over, we do that then. We, we then take communion together to prepare for the service at 8.30 pretty much every Sunday. There's not a baptism. Um, so you're welcome to join us. However, and we also do baptisms at the, usually the first Sunday of every month and pretty much every month we have baptisms. And, but at the same time, what we like to do is a few times a year, we like to take the whole service and really focus in on these things and not only explain them, but experience them together. Um, and so that's what we've been doing today. Those are called devoted Sundays, and this is one of them. So let's unpack some of this. One of the things that was weird to me as a kid is when people did try to explain them, they used words that made no sense to me. They would use these big words and they would go, oh, well, it's this. It's a sacrament. What's a sacrament? I don't know. They, they would use words like consummate or consecrate, which again doesn't mean anything to me. So let's start with some of these vocabulary words, and I think this will help us unpack this. So some, some devoted Sundays will spend the whole Sunday on baptism, or the whole Sunday on communion, or the whole Sunday on families. This time I'm going to just reference all three of them, but I'm also going to teach these basic vocabularies as we move. So the first word we want to look at is the word representation. What does it mean to represent something? Now, I'm a word wonk, and I love going into the etymology of words, the foundation of words, where they come from. And the word representation obviously means to represent. That doesn't require a lot of research to see that it means represent. But when you look into the original, it actually re, again, present, means to literally to introduce. And so to introduce again is what's being talked about here. Um, it's, it's to introduce you to something so that every time we take communion together, we're being reintroduced to the work of Jesus Christ. Every time we experience baptism together, we are reintroduced yet again to the work of Christ to raise us from the dead, to purify us. This is, this is what we're experiencing. You want to get to know Jesus? Do communion with us and we'll reintroduce you to him. You want to get to know Jesus? Experience baptism with us, experience family with us, and we'll reintroduce you to him once again, again, and again, and again. That's what this is all about. 
Um, we just last week, we elected uh, a member of our church um, to be our representative um, in Washington. It should be that the people who are in Washington are about to get to know more about us, even though they've never met us, because they're going to meet Nate. So they're going to meet Nathan, and he's going to, Nate and Nathaniel, and they're going to meet him, and they're going to go like, oh, you must be one of this group of people. You must represent them. It's, a, it's an interesting concept, representation. God makes things sacred again. In fact, as we're going to look, what's wild is he takes common things and makes them sacred. We'll unpack that. We talk about that. We don't, we don't make things sacred. Human beings don't have that power to make things holy, to make things sacred. The word sacred just means set apart, special. We don't have the ability to do that in an eternal sense, in a divine sense. But I mean, we can all make things sacred in one sense. Take something common, for example, like March 19th. It's just at any old day of the year. It's not December 25th. It's nothing special about March 19th. Unless, like me, it's your birthday. Then it's special. It suddenly gains a special, it's sacred in my life and that it's set apart as different from all other days, right? It makes that day a different day for me. It's just a common every old day day, right? There's nothing special about that day in and of itself, except that it's the day I was born. That's kind of special to me. It's kind of important. And so, so that again, you understand the concept of taking something common and then setting it apart as different from the others. God does that in a divine way with things. But only He can truly do that in a divine way. We just sang about that. My life is built on His love. He is the secure foundation, and only He is the secure foundation. That's where we get the word, this concept is where we get the word holy. So holy, yes, from the character perspective, does mean righteous. But it's not merely righteous. It's similar to pure. But it's not only pure. The literal meaning is other, separate, different, to use some bigger words, transcendent, higher, superior. Again, we just sang about this. There is no one like him. There are none beside him. He's different than everything else and everyone else. He is far above, far transcendent, far better than anything that could possibly be compared to him. Now here's what's interesting. Pretty much every monotheistic religion agrees with this. Every monotheistic religion agrees that, that God, the God who they worship, is holy. He is transcendent. He is independent. But more than that, very often, they also teach that He is disinterested. That He is unknowable. And that's a, that's a unique thing about Christianity. Is that in Christianity, God is holy and transcendent and superior, and He came near. He came and experienced life with us. He didn't need to. He just chose to out of His love for us. That's an amazing thing. When I, a few years ago, when I wanted to learn and be mentored in the, in the character trait of humility, what I didn't want to do is just find someone who was pathetic. I mean, yeah, humble, but they don't have any choice about it. They're humble because they're just pitiful people, right? That doesn't, that's not, that doesn't help me at all. What I needed was someone who everyone respected, everyone looked up to, who could have totally gotten away with being a jerk, but wasn't. They were instead humble. That's what I needed to teach me. I needed someone who, who had that. I need a holy God, yes, but I need one who comes near, yes. Someone who seeks me out. 
We need both of those things to be true. That's actually the, in many, so many ways, that is the gospel. A holy God who comes near. So with that in mind, let's talk about another vocabulary word, consecrate. So to consecrate something, and again, the word wonk in me, I love doing the, the research to discover where these words come from. Anytime you see the word con, or C-O-N, or C-O-M, it's a root that means with. So when you see, for example, comfortable, come fortis, fortis, where we get the word fortress, strong. Comfortable means with strength. That's actually pretty good insight into the understanding of what comfortable really is about, right? How about confident? Confides, with faith. Confides. Content, with stretchiness. With uh, the ability to adapt. That's content. It really helps us when you dig it sometimes into these root words and you get like, oh, that makes sense. I get now where that word came from. Consecrate with sacred. Sacred. To make something sacred. The power that God has in the divine realm to make something sacred. He consecrate that. I'll come back to that in a minute. And the opposite of consecrate, by the way, is profane. Profane literally means to put something in front of the temple. Profane, fane temple, comes from in front of the temple. To make something more important than the gods. To put something out there as a priority above the temple, above worship, above God. That's profane. Profane literally means to give something a lower status than it should have. The human language is powerful. It's meaningful. It can communicate great blessings and great encouragement. Therefore, to treat the human language as though it is filth is profanity. To treat it something that is powerful and meaningful and is a God-given gift, and then to use it in a crass, filthy, unkind, disrespectful way, that's why we call that profanity. You are taking something that God has declared meaningful and given meaning, and you give it less meaning. You take something holy and make it common. You take something common and you make it filthy. That's profane. So we don't ever want to profane anything that God has made holy. Another cool word, ordinance, just means to put something in order. So when someone is ordained, which in the, in our, the way we use it often it kind of in America means if you're ordained, you're allowed to then do the ordinances, meaning you're allowed to lead through, you've been trained to do the correct order of worship or the correct order of whatever. It's a secular concept that there would be certain people who are set apart to do this. They've got the training they need to make that happen. But that's where the word ordain or ordinance comes from is to put things in order. Now, here's one of my favorites. This unpacks so much for me is the word consummate. Consummate, when we're talking about these behaviors, baptism, Lord's Supper, family, is to me is a powerful word. So you see the, the root again, con, with, and some of you, the math teachers in the word, and are here in the room, know the rest of it. What does some mean? To add, yeah. To complete, to, to make more, to with, literally consummate means with complete. With completion. With uh, finished. In other words, consummate actually technically means there's nothing more to add. There's nothing more to add. It's done. It's finished. In other words, because most of us think of consummate, we think of, of, a, of a marriage. That you have a wedding, and then on the wedding night you consummate the marriage. All that means is 
from that moment on, you ain't getting any more married. You checked all the boxes, right? You're as married as you're going to get. And you're not going to get any more married than this. I love, I love sitting around a campfire with other professional Christians because um, we talk about weird things. And so one of the things I like to throw out there is, at what stage in a wedding ceremony is the couple married? You ever thought about that? What is the key moment? If lightning struck, bam, right there and killed one of them, would the other one be a widow? Like what's the exact, or versus they tragically never got married. Like which, which is that magic moment? And it's funny because I can't get any agreement among, among pastors and, and priests and others on exactly when that magic moment happens. But everyone agrees that after the wedding night, if one of them dies, they're a widow. The other one's a widow. Because all the boxes, there's a whole bunch of checks that can go on the boxes. How many of them have to be checked in order for them to be married? Which ones have to be checked in order for them to be married? We could debate about that. But when they're all checked, they're married. They've consummated it. They're not going to get any more married than they are now. Does it make sense? This is a great picture when you say, well, does, does, what about, what is the role of confession in salvation? What is the role of baptism in salvation? What is the role of, of communion in salvation? What is the role of blood? All these different things in salvation. Well, I can tell you this. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and you experience all these things. What I know for sure is you're saved. It's consummated. I think there's a great sense in which baptism is like a consummation. Listen, if there's a box to be checked, that's a good one to be checked. Once it's checked, there's no questions anymore. There would be no wondering. It's not necessary for salvation, but it is a part of salvation, the, the baptism experience. And so to consummate that, to fully finish it, part of why this is so significant is the fact that of Jesus' words on the cross. Jesus' words on the cross were, it is finished. The work of salvation is done. There's nothing more to be added. It's done. The boxes are checked. We're finished here. There's no, nothing more for you to do for the work of salvation. It's done. It's checked. It's finished. It has been consummated. That's, that's a, a cool concept as we, as we continue to dig into this. You're not getting any more saved than He saves you. If you're saved by Him, you're fully saved. It's done. Sacrament. Sacrament's an interesting word. Again, the root here is sacred, set apart. According to some, especially like our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, they would say um, that the doctrine or the catechism, the main teaching there would be this, this terminology. It is a visible and, this is a key word, effective symbol of grace. Um, to simplify this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here to simplify this, many of you, if you know me well and you've ever had a meal with me, you know that for me primarily food is a method of transporting sauce from my plate to my mouth. Okay? That's its main job. That's food's job is to get sauce from there to here. Okay? In a sense, in the Roman Catholic mindset, the, the, um, these sacraments are a way of getting grace from there to here. Now, back in the 1500s, they had this little disagreement about that called the Protestant Reformation. There were several things they were disagreeing about. This is one of them. Is there anything to add to salvation? Is there anything to add? Uh, it, can I get more saved than I am? And this was a disagreement. In the Roman Catholic world, you are more secure with more grace, more saved, in a sense, um, because of this added thing, this this thing, this sacrament that has brought grace literally to you. 
Typically, in the Protestant world, we would say something, this is like the, what I, the way I would say it, is that I would say a sacrament is something that is visible and mysterious. I don't fully understand what all it's meant to accomplish. There's a mystery there, for sure. It's visible and powerful. It's visible and a representation of a completeness. So, and, and typically you don't see a lot of, of the word sacrament used in Protestant churches because they don't want to confuse, they don't want to create confusion sometimes. Typically, um, from a theological perspective, in the Baptist world, if you hear somebody talk about sacraments, they're either talking about baptism or communion, typically. Sometimes they're called ordinances, which we've already talked about. Here's another fun word, profession, to speak forth, to proclaim. Devotion, which is one of our pillars and why we, we call these Sundays devoted Sundays, wholehearted pursuit. The word devoted to the truth of what Christ has taught us. So many ways we could talk about what God has done for us, which doesn't take away the truth that He is separate from us and that He has come to be with us. Both true. He has prayed. He is different from us. He is sacred. He certainly is transcendent. And yet, as Christ prayed, we can experience oneness with Him. And three, the common things that Jesus took to teach us about this. Common things. Bathing, eating, family are ways that He communicates something sacred to us. Something as simple as bathing. So what is the holiness communicated in baptism? I'm going to do this very quickly. One, baptism isn't accepting a call to holiness. To seek to live as holy people. We're representing the purity. Jesus took, and from before, took the mikvah bath that the Hebrew people had done for thousands of years, and he, then he and his followers declared it as something extra, something new. There's a new aspect to it. Um, we're going to see this in just a second. And then also the idea of a tomb. Tombs were common. And to take the picture of a tomb and make it sacred is really wild. But he does. Look at what, what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's part of the symbology. The earliest Christian writings talk about the, the preference of dunking first. Why? Because it was a, a more complete picture. If you can't dunk, and by the way, if you're going to dunk, you dunk first in running water. If running water is not available, you dunk in still water. If still water is not available, then you pour or sprinkle water as the third option. Clearly, they're pointing out it isn't the magical action of the water. It's what the water means, what it represents that's magical. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to say, like, do this if you have it. If you don't this, then if you don't have that, that. They would have said, if you don't have this, don't do it. It's not the act that's consecrated and sacred. It's what it means that's consecrated and sacred. That's the, that's the imagery. So when you walk, read the Didache, the early, one of the earliest Christian writings of ordinances, the order, correct order of doing things, um, that's one of the things that's talked about in there. But also it's a picture of purification, of bathing. Acts twenty two sixteen. why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Again, that picture, this picture of being having your sins washed away. Several things baptism represents those are two of the big ones. How about the holiness communi communicated in the Lord's Supper? Now, I was in, in um, uh, 
the, the sermons, one of the sermons I was looking at, the pastor got really worked up because someone had asked him, why can't we do PBJ and PB&J and Coke for communion? And the pastor got really upset about this, which I thought was odd, because I thought he'd done a good job communicating this idea of what makes it sacred. And, and the irony is, it was a Baptist preacher, and so you know he's not got wine. So he says, no, Jesus consecrated bread and wine, not peanut butter and jelly and, and Coke. Like, well, one, the wine and bread that Jesus consecrated got eaten. It's not around anymore. Like, he's not reconsecrating it every single time. And on top of that, and I'm like, you're a Baptist preacher. My guess is there's not wine in your little cups anyway. There's probably grape juice in there as well anyway. So here's, here's what I would say. Would there be a place for something other than bread, which by the way should be unleavened bread and the wine should be wine if we're going to try to follow the Passover model? I think it's the symbology of Passover that gives it power. John, I mean uh, Luke, when he does this, he summarizes the entire Passover meal in nine verses in the book of Luke, this Last Supper, and emphasizes these two things from the Passover meal. By the way, Lord willing, we'll be doing a Passover um, this next year in 2023 at about the time of Easter. If you've never experienced one, I would highly recommend you come. Um, it really is helpful for unpacking this, and we don't have the time to do it this morning anymore. So Jesus took the physical bread, the common thing bread. He'd already been identified as the lamb. Now he's being identified. He consecrates it and says this, when he had taken some bread, Luke 22, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, this beautiful representation of what Christ is going to accomplish, the brokenness of his body, the cup of redemption next, Luke twenty-two twenty, and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Again, there's hours worth of material here to unpack. For the, for the simplicity of seeing that Christ has consecrated this experience for us, which we just took together, that it is the experience of taking together the bread and the cup to experience and be reminded of what he did for us and what he's done for us and what he's doing for us and the fact that he's going to come back. Finally, holiness is communicated in the family. Again, I don't want to spend much time here. Kim already did. She did a great job of unpacking uh, the Deuteronomy 6 idea that we see, the fact that we are consecrated, we are set apart in order to take care of our family, to be the first leader, teacher of faith um, for our families, for our children. We see God himself consecrate, make sacred family in Genesis chapter 1 in the first chapter. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Given this consecration that God made it, he he, he invented it, he created it, he made it exist, and then he blessed it as this so such an important representation of him on earth. It's why as Christians always should make us uncomfortable when people try to mess with God's concept of the family. When people try to deviate from God's or what God ordained as family, what is the proper order of family that he creates here? It's really fascinating. And on top of that, um, after we talked about this some on a podcast this week, Alan Pig uh, sent me a message and said, um, hey, here's one of the things that strikes me as really powerful about this. So I've attacked this on here. I think it's cool. That these ordinances, these, these sacraments, these 
these things that we do, these representations, these physical experiences that we can taste and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good, that we can experience that in that moment of the spiritual truth. That one of the other cool things about it is it unites us to every other believer around the world today and for the last thousands of years. We connect to every Hebrew who for thousands of years was dunked in the mikvah bath when we experienced baptism. Everybody who was, who was dunked in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, we connect to them. The fact that Jesus was, we connect to them, much less everyone who died for their faith, dead and buried and someday will be resurrected. It connects us to the thousands. There's going to be about 24 hours here where pretty much every hour church is happening somewhere, right? And during that time, people are going to be singing the same songs and experiencing these same things together. And it unites us all together when we see that. The same thing is true with family. The same thing is true with communion. That we're united together with the followers from the time Jesus ordained us. And even from before, from the, from, from the way the Jews for thousands of years experienced Passover, we're, we're experiencing this truth that God came here and He has had mercy on us. We're connected to the original family, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth. We're connected to the, quote, holy family, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Jude and James and Simon and Joseph and their sisters as are listed in Scripture. Consider how we're all connected together. That these things bring us together that set us apart also as a distinct people. In 1 Peter 2.9, we see that salvation is an act of sanctification, of consecration. 1 Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who we are. We've been made a holy nation, a sacred people. And something for us to remember, and what the reason we celebrate these things each Sunday, and then when we do it all together, is to remind ourselves of this truth, that we together are a holy people called by God for these special things. If you will, stand with me. And what seemed appropriate with this on the forefront of our minds, this idea of sacred, this idea of consecrated, this idea of chosen and set apart, it seemed appropriate to me that how we would close out our time is with the Lord's Prayer, which you'll find among several places, but one of them is in Matthew 6, uh, verses 9 through 13. And I know you come from various, many various different uh, faith backgrounds, and so we won't all say it in exactly the same way. It's okay. You don't have to read the words that are on the screen. Um, you can say it the way you were raised if you prefer. When we gather here together in a moment, we do the invitation when the, when the music begins. If you want to come here and pray or respond in any way or join our family, you can do that as well this morning. So if you will, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, forgive, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.